Well, good morning, New Life Church. So glad that you're joining us today. It's been great to worship together already uh, to a team. Thank you, Dave and team, for being uh, with us here this morning, or with me, I should say, with you at home. Boy, it's felt great to, to have the drums out here again and to worship with the team. First time in about three months that we've had one of our teams leading us again. And uh, what's going to make it even better is when you are here to worship with us in person. And church, that day is coming, and maybe it's coming soon. Uh, you've likely already heard uh, the proposed changes and the restrictions. That'll be, uh, I guess, clarified next week, which may allow us as a church to gather together in some smaller numbers to worship in person. And man, am I looking forward to that. And I know they're proposing a 10% capacity, and some people might ask, well, is it even worth it at that point? And my answer is an unequivocal yes. Yes, whatever those numbers are, we're going to have services. We're going to gather together. We're going to worship God and fellowship together because we need that. I don't know about you, but I need that. And uh, I've just been weary over these weeks, especially lately, missing you, missing fellowship. And uh, I'm sure that you've been weary in lots of different ways in this season, and uh, we just need to be together. So I'm just looking forward to, to uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, gathering together with many of you here, and you're going to hear more about that this coming week. Uh, well, before we go to God's Word, let's just take a moment and uh, just invite God into uh, our weariness, if we have that here this morning, and invite Him to speak to us. God, we need you. We need your encouragement. God, uh, we're all carrying something today. And, you know, Lord, I'm feeling weary in a variety of ways. I'm sick of, of preaching to a church that's in other places. Um, God, we want to be together, and we need to be together. And, God, I just pray that you would make a way, Lord, for us to be able to gather. Um, and, Lord, that you would just make a way for us as a, as a community, as, as, as a nation, as a world, to to pass through this whole COVID season and come out on the other side. And God, just give us everything that we need today uh, to endure, to endure well. And as we come to your word, God, um, we just come with open minds and open hearts to receive whatever you have for each one of us. God, I know that you want to speak to everybody today. So give us ears to hear your voice uh, and a heart to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you, but I don't like you. Have you ever heard that saying before? <laughs> I love you, but I don't like you. Have you ever said that before? I think I might have once or twice. It's, uh, certainly it's one I've heard, maybe often amongst siblings, one sibling saying to another, often with a parent saying, Johnny, you say sorry to see, you tell Susie you love her. And those words are uttered. I love you, but I don't like you. Words maybe that a spurned spouse has said to their other, their partner, um, after they've been hurt. I love you, but I don't like you. What does that mean? What does that mean? I think what that means is, is there's a difference between how we can treat someone and how we might feel about someone. A difference between our actions and our attitudes. I think what that means is you can have my acceptance, but that doesn't mean that you have my affection. Those can be two different things. You can have my acceptance. I won't reject you. I won't put you out. But that doesn't mean that you have my affection. And I wonder if God is like that. Surely you've wondered that. Does God ever look on you and say, I love you, but I don't really like you? 
I think we've all asked ourselves that question. And it's an important question because it has great bearing on how we live our lives. We are uh, continuing in a series this morning. It's week four of a journey we're taking over these months in a series called This Is Us, where together we're looking at who we are in Jesus Christ. We're discovering all the richness of our identity in Christ. And the big idea for this series is this. Your truest identity is found in Jesus Christ. Your truest identity is found in Jesus Christ. Your truest self is not found uh, in relation to your family, your spouse, your kids. It's not found in your relation to your work, your career. Your truest self isn't found in your relation to your possessions or your ancestry. No, your truest self is found and known in your relationship to Jesus Christ. And so our theme verse through this series is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, which says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every blessing in Christ. God has blessed us with every, not some, but every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so week by week, what we're doing together is we are exploring these spiritual blessings. And we're finding that, uh, that as we add these blessings together, they form for us this true identity of who we are in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at another one of these blessings that belong to us who belong to Jesus. And so what I want to do is I just want to continue beyond that verse into verse 4 through 8 of Ephesians chapter 1, because we're going to come to a key word, the important word this morning. So let's continue verse 4. For He, God, chose us in Him, in Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and will. See those two words? His pleasure and His will. To the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him... We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. In Him that is in Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. And so this is the label that we're going to see that God gives us in Christ. He gives us the label forgiven in Christ. Now that word forgiveness, I mean, that's a big word, right? I mean, it's a word that you know well that we use often If you were to look at a word cloud of the Christian faith, and some of you know word clouds are all these words that are associated with a certain thing, and the bigger words are the more prominent words. I think one of the bigger words we would see in the word cloud of Christianity is the word forgiveness. If I ask my kids, you know, why did Jesus come and die? They would say, to forgive my sins. We became Christians. We put our trust in Jesus when we asked for His forgiveness. For our sins. And so this is a word that we know is really important for us in our faith, in our relationship with God, and we use it an awful lot. But, but I wonder, Christians, if we fail to really fully understand all that's contained in that word, and, and we fail to really live fully in light of what that means. And so that's what I want to explore this morning. 
You know, I, I, I used to think that forgiveness was just kind of interchangeable with another big word in the Bible, the word we looked at last week, the word justification, because you often find these words being used together, and I just assume, well, maybe they're kind of synonyms. We have an example of them being uh, used together in Acts chapter 13, uh, verses 38 and 39, where Paul says, I want, uh, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. And so we see uh, forgiveness and justification here together. And uh, we wonder, are, are these just exactly the same thing? Maybe one justification, maybe that's more of one of those formal words and, and forgiveness is just kind of the common speak vernacular way of saying that. Kind of like my legal name is Rustin, but you know, everybody calls me Rusty. And if you were to call me Rustin, I'd probably think that either you were showing me great respect or I'd done something really wrong. But uh, Rustin, Rusty, it's kind of the same thing. Or, or maybe it's kind of like naming animals, right? Canis lupus is just the official name for a dog. Really the same thing. One's more of a formal way of stating it, and there's something that's more just common speaking. And maybe that's what justification and forgiveness are. But what I want us to see this morning is that though they are a set, they go together, they are not the same. And so last week we looked at this word, justification. Uh, to be justified means to be right, to be right in relationship with another person, in this case, with God, because, of course, our sin breaks our relationship with God. And what we discovered last week is that we can never be right with God based on our own works, our own goodness. We have a debt to God that we can never repay through our efforts. We can never be justified before God, right with God, acceptable to Him through our own goodness. But the good news is that God has made a way to be right with Him, to be justified through His Son, Jesus, who came into this world and took on flesh. And though He was blameless in Himself, perfectly righteous, on the cross, He bore all of our blemishes. He bore all of our sin. He absorbed all of God's righteous judgment that we deserved. He bore it for us. So that our debt to God and our sin could be canceled. Through Jesus, God rips up and cancels our debt and He accepts us. He receives us. We can belong to Him. We can be right with Him. Through Jesus, we are justified. We are not rejected. We are accepted by God. Now that is a great and glorious truth and label to wear justified that's really good news, and I think sometimes I wonder if, if, if we think maybe that's too good of news. Like, can it really be that easy? Like, that's just it? Jesus bears it all, and we're forgiven, we're justified, we're free. Is it really that easy? I think sometimes we wonder, maybe God loves us, He accepts us, He treats us a certain way, but in His heart, he doesn't feel affection towards me. He harbors maybe some bitterness or anger or maybe he's kind of annoyed by me or he's irritated by me or he's disappointed 
in me. Have you ever wondered that? Of course you have. I think it's just a, a natural question to ask. Does God love me but, but, but not like me? Why do we ask that question? I think it's, it's because we're like that, aren't we? Don't we find ourselves often loving, choosing in our own will to not reject another, but to accept them, to treat them in a certain way, but in our heart not feeling that affection, still harboring resentment, harboring bitterness, harboring anger. I think we all know what that's like, feeling irritated and annoyed at another. You know, maybe in, in marriage, we know this dynamic, Right? Someone just never puts down the toilet lid. And I won't say who that is, the husband or wife, but there's always someone who just never puts down the toilet seat. And time after time, there's this, this irritation, this kind of grievance that builds up. Or maybe someone never closes the cupboard doors. <laughs> And leaves all of them open in the kitchen. Even though you ask them time and again, would you just please close the cupboard doors? And there, every time you walk in, they're all open again. And that irritation, that annoyance builds up within us. Do you know what that feels like? Of course you do. And, and, and we wonder naturally, does God at times feel that way towards us? Is God like that? I heard a story of a priest, now I don't know if this is a true story, of a priest who heard that a woman in his parish was uh, receiving visions of Jesus. Jesus was coming to her and, and speaking to her in these visions, and he was a little skeptical, and so he paid this woman a visit. And he said to her, okay, the next time that Jesus comes to you in a vision, I want you to ask Jesus what my last sin was that I confessed in confession, what my last sin was. And the woman said, okay, I'll do that. And so a while later, the priest heard that this woman again was receiving visions of Jesus. So he visited her again and, so, and said, so did you ask Jesus my question? And she said, yes, I did. And he said, well, what did he say? And the woman said, well, Jesus said, I don't remember. I don't remember. Now, again, I don't know if that story is true or not, but... I think that's a profound statement because, you know, God actually did utter those words on our sin. I don't remember. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 34, um, here in talking about the new covenant, this is a prophecy of God given to Jeremiah. He says, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now, now listen to this. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. God says, a time is coming. I'm going to do a new thing, a new covenant. And when I forgive my people's sin, I will remember their sin no more. Now, last week we took communion Remember that Jesus, in his last supper with his disciples, he picked up that cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. In Jesus, this new covenant has come that God has made with us. And in this new covenant, this new relationship that we have with God through the blood of Jesus, our sins are forgiven which means God remembers our sins 
no more. Just think of that. Not only does He accept us in spite of our sin, He remembers our sin no more. In a few other places in the Bible, God talks about blotting out or erasing our transgressions and sins. In Isaiah chapter 2, He talks about how though our sins were as scarlet, He washes them white as snow, removes all stain. In Psalm 103, verses 9 through 12, David says this, He that is God will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. These feelings. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for, for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Did you see that? God does not harbor anger against us. No, in Christ he has removed our sin as far away from us as the east is from the west, as far away from his memory as the east is from the west. He doesn't just set our sin off to the side so that at some point in the future when we're maybe not doing, we're not doing so great, he kind of points to that sin and goes, remember? Remember what you did? No, he doesn't remind us. He does not remember our sin. And so this is forgiveness. When God thinks of me, he doesn't think of my sin. I think that's a great definition of forgiveness. When God thinks of me, He doesn't think of my sin. The prophet Micah puts it this way in Micah chapter 7, verse 18, and I think this sums it up well. Who is a God like you? In other words, God is like no other in this way. Who pardons sin and who forgives the transgression of the remnant of His, his inheritance, that is His people, you do not stay angry forever, but God, you delight to show mercy. Who is like this God who pardons sin and forgives our transgression? And so we see justification, God pardoning sin. And so justification is like more a legal term. God has paid our debt. We do not owe Him anymore. Right? He, we, we are acceptable to God. So this idea of justification is more like a legal standing with God. But not only does He pardon our sin, not only has He justified us, but He has forgiven our sin to be remembered no more. So forgiveness is more like a relational standing with God. He delights in us and delights to show His mercy in us. Not only do we have in Jesus God's will, but we have His pleasure. He delights to show His mercy. In other words, God does not keep score. He is not keeping score, but our wrongs, our flaws, our shortcomings. He keeps no record of wrongs, we're told in 1 Corinthians 13. For love, godly love, keeps no record of wrongs. But do you know what the Bible says God does keep a record of? It says in, in uh, Psalm 56, verse 8, and what a great verse. You have kept count of my sorrows. You have put my tears in your bottle. Listen to that. You have kept 
Count of my sorrows, God, you have put my tears in your bottle. In other words, God is not counting our sins. God counts our sorrows. God is not collecting our transgressions. God collects our tears. That's what God is like. A God who has compassion and loves to pour His mercy and to lavish us with His grace. Now, how would that make you feel? How would that make you feel that God does not count your sins and transgressions, but He counts your sorrows and your tears? That's what He looks at. His heart is towards you, Christian, for He has forgiven you in Christ. I think we have a beautiful display of this at the end of the Gospel of John. And you likely know the story where Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, uh, as Jesus is being arrested and interrogated and he's about to be crucified, um, Peter denies Jesus three times to save his own skin. Again and again, people say, you were with Jesus, you belong to him. And, and three times Jesus denies that he knows him. He denounces Jesus and says, I don't know him. And after Peter denies Jesus three times, we're told he's just overcome with sorrow. He goes into an alley, he puts his head against a wall, and he weeps bitterly. He has failed his Savior. How could he? And so we just have this this, this picture of this man who has so much regret and is carrying this guilt. And then as Jesus, his Lord, is crucified on a cross and buried in the ground, and now he's going to have to live with this guilt and this regret and this shame for the rest of his life. Except that he didn't. After Jesus rose from the dead, we had this beautiful encounter in John chapter 21. When Jesus comes, the risen Lord comes to Peter, and he says to Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you, Lord. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. A second time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you, Lord. And he says, okay, then take care of my sheep. A third time, Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? And the Bible tells us at this point that Peter was feeling hurt. He was kind of feeling insulted by this, that God, Jesus would ask a third time. And he says, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, okay, then feed my sheep. At some point, I'm sure it dawned on Peter what Jesus was doing. Was Jesus asking this three times for his own sake? No. He knew Peter's heart. He didn't need to really know if Peter loved him. He needed Peter to know that Peter loved him. And he needed Peter to know that he was forgiven, that he was reinstated by Jesus. And so Jesus gives him three opportunities to express his love, to overcome those three times in which he fell short. And, and I think this is a beautiful display of the mercy of Jesus. What he's really doing here is saying, Peter, I don't want you to go through life and to go in ministry feeling like you're a failure. I want you to know to the depths of your soul that you are forgiven and I don't hold any of this against you. You are forgiven. Live forgiven. I don't want you to carry the weight of that forgiven sin even one minute longer. Jesus wants the same for us, brothers and sisters. 
He wants us to be free of the guilt of our sin, which he has forgiven, free of the shame, free of the regret. He wants us to live with this label, forgiven, forgiven. Now, how do we do that? How do we live forgiven? What, what does that mean? I just want to suggest two things. Uh, it means that, first of all, we need to forgive ourselves. If God forgives us, if when he thinks of us, he thinks not of our sin, he remembers our sin no more, then we need to forgive ourselves. Because I know right now that many of us, were carrying shame. The shame of things that we've done, our shortcomings, that, that maybe God has forgiven us from, we've confessed, and yet we still carry this weight of shame, this feeling of being tainted, compromised, dirty, a failure, maybe for some specific thing in the past, maybe a, a distant past, or maybe just a general sense that we are tainted, that when God looks at us, He's disappointed. And that shame... And for those of you who carry this, it cripples you, right? That shame keeps you in a prison of the sin that God, Jesus died to free you of. And it's one of Satan's chief weapons against us, shame. If he can't destroy us from causing us to denounce God, then he wants to disable us for feeling like, by feeling like that maybe Jesus kind of denounces us. If he can't destroy us, he wants to disable us. And we see this in Revelation uh, chapter 12, verse 10. This picture of interaction between God and Satan. It says in Revelation 10, uh, 12, verse 10, I, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah. For the accuser, that is Satan, for the word Satan literally means accuser, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. You hear that? Satan, the accuser, accuses us before God day and night. Essentially saying, look at Rusty. Look at look what he did. Look what he thought again and again. He keeps doing it over and over again. Are you just going to put up with it, God? How much longer are you going to put up with it? Do you really love him? Do you really want him? And constantly Satan is accusing us before God, wanting to heap shame upon us. And that cripples us in a few different ways. It, it, it cripples us because, because shame causes us to hide from God. If you go back to the being, the very first sin, Genesis chapter 3, right? Adam and Eve, they sin against God, and right away they feel shame. They realize they are naked, they are, they are vulnerable. They are embarrassed in themselves. And what do they do? They, they sin, they feel shame, and they hide from God. Because that's what sin will do. It causes us to hide from God because we, we're fearful of how He may think of us. We kind of put ourselves on the sideline. Um, I, I remember when I was a new pastor, the very first person I baptized was, was a man in his mid-70s by the name of Ken. Now, actually, two families just moved into our community here, Stonewall, that are related to Ken, which I think is quite cool, but because this was in Blind River, Ontario, far from here. Ken, Ken was, a, was a beautiful Christian man. 
come to Christ later on in his life, and he had smoked an awful lot, and he continued to smoke. And he wanted to kick the habit. He hated that he smoked, but he just couldn't kick it. And he felt so guilty of the fact that um, he, he kept smoking, and he was pretty sure that God was really disappointed in him as well. And for that reason, he just had never gotten baptized. And I, can't, I remember the conversation, Ken, I mean, why aren't you baptized? And he said, well, I smoke. I still sin. And I said, Ken, that's okay. God has forgiven all of that. He doesn't hold that against you. When he sees you, he doesn't see the fact that you still struggle with smoking. And I just kind of helped him see that he was right with God. God had forgiven him of that sin. And God's pleasure was on him. And he needed to be baptized. And so Ken was the very first uh, person that, uh, that I had the joy of baptizing. Here's a picture of Ken. This is years ago. Uh, and that's back when we made people wear white choir robes when they were baptized. I think uh, he, he was maybe the first and last person we made do that. But it was just a beautiful day when, when uh, Ken shared his faith in Jesus, the difference Jesus had made in his life. And though he was not yet perfect, um, he was forgiven and he was baptized. And it wasn't shortly after that that Ken went to be with his Lord Jesus. But you know what shame will do is Shame will cause us to feel like we're, we're compromised, that God looks on us as damaged goods. Surely He wouldn't use us. Surely He's not pleased with us, and so we hide ourselves from Him. We put ourselves in, on the sidelines. We don't put ourselves out there to serve. This is what it says in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, God, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we with reverence can serve you. God, God, if you kept a record, who could actually stand before you? Who could serve you? But you don't keep a record of wrongs. You don't account for those. You have forgotten those. You have forgiven and therefore we can serve you with great reverence. But shame will keep us from God. It'll keep us hidden. It'll keep us trapped in the prison of our sin. It also causes us to worry about our circumstances. It causes us to wonder when hard things come into our life, whether maybe this is God's way of punishing us. Instead of going through something hard and going, I know God is with me in this, we wonder, is God with me? Has He left me because He was displeased with me? Am I on my own? Is this punishment? And while at times it is true that God does allow hard things or bring hard things into our life to correct us, if there's something that we are doing that may be destructive for ourselves or others, He, oh, he, he may do that to lovingly correct us. And so we, ought, we have to examine ourselves. But what shame will do, it'll cause us every time something hard happens to wonder, to worry about whether God is upset with us whether he has left us, always wondering when the other shoe will drop. That's what shame will do. Shame causes us to bury our past, keep our skeletons in our closet. But God doesn't want us to bury our past. If it's true that we are forgiven, then we don't have to bury our past. This is what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 15 and 16. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, because he was, he had done terrible things, Paul. He had murdered people. He was the greatest persecutor of the church. But God has showed him mercy 
Worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his immense patience as an example of those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Why did Paul receive the mercy and the calling of God? It wasn't despite what he had done. It was because of his sin, God wanted to come and show the greatness of his mercy and use this worst of sinners for his glory. This is an awesome truth. God doesn't want us to bury our past. Our pastel skeletons, they don't disqualify us to be used by God. I want to suggest that they equip us. All those things that we have done, good and bad, that are forgiven by God, God wants to use those. They equip us to serve Him and to serve others. Maybe some of us, we need to get the skeletons out of the closet, those things that we're ashamed of and we just don't want to think about or talk about. Maybe we need to bring those out so that we can help other people that are in difficult marriages, other people that, that know the pain of divorce, other people that are struggling with alcoholism or addiction or whatever else that maybe you've gone through yourself. Those things don't disqualify you from being used. They equip you to be used by God for his glory and for the good of others. But shame will cause us to bury our past. God doesn't want us to carry shame. He's forgiven us. And so we need to forgive ourselves. So how do we need to forgive ourselves? How do we need to release guilt and release shame? And um, one of the ways we do that is by confession. By confession. It says in 1 John 1, 9, um, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You know, confession is a beautiful thing. You know, as a good little Baptist boy, I thought confession was something other people did because they thought that somehow they had to confess their sin every time it happened. Otherwise, this label came off. And, and that's not what it means when God calls us to confession. It's not like Okay, when we first become a Christian, God forgives all of our past sin, but then every time we sin, we have to take this off and confess so that we can put it back on, and then we might sin again and the label comes off, but then we have to confess that sin so that we can wear the label again off, on, off, on. No, that's not how it works. When we were forgiven in Christ, we were forgiven of all of our sin, past, present, future. And so we're invited to to confess, not so that God will forgive us, but so that we might enjoy the forgiveness and find the ability to forgive ourselves and let go of guilt and let go of shame. It's the way of inviting God's forgiveness into that place. Confession is a gift from God. It's the way that we experience His forgiveness. So, how do we forgive ourselves? Well, we need to confess our sin to God to receive and experience in a fresh way that forgiveness. We also need to speak God's truth to our sin, to our guilt, to our shame, that we are forgiven. You know, if you go back to Revelation chapter 10, it says that Satan, or 12, Satan accuses us uh, day and night before God, but he has been hurled down. The next verse says... They triumphed, that is us, God's people. We triumphed over Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. 
We triumphed over guilt and shame by the blood of Jesus through whom we are forgiven and by the word of our testimony. What does that mean? It means that our, our, our claim, our claim, our assurance that we are forgiven through the blood of Jesus. What that means is we need to speak to our shame and guilt that we are forgiven. We need to say it. I am forgiven in Christ. Every time that guilt and that shame comes for sin that, that God has forgiven, that we have confessed, we need to speak to that guilt, speak to that shame and say, in Christ I am clean. In Christ I am clean. I am forgiven. We need to say to ourselves, I will not belittle the blood of Jesus by condemning myself. If Jesus has not condemned me but has forgiven me, who am I? Who am I to condemn myself? Who am I to not forgive myself? Who am I to hang on to guilt and to hang on to shame? To live forgiven means we need to release that. We need to forgive ourselves. And so there's some of you right now, like, You've been, you've been hanging on to something that Jesus has freed you from. Is there, any, is there any shame that you're carrying right now? Any guilt for something that God has forgiven that just weighs on you? You need to forgive yourself today. We need to forgive ourselves, but then secondly, we need to forgive others that's what it means to wear this label forgiven because when we're given the label forgiven, we're also given another label and that's the label forgiver. To be forgiven is to be a forgiver, which is why in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, we pray, forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. And we've said those words many times when we've, uh, when we've said the Lord's Prayer, but we often don't read what comes right after the Lord's Prayer, the very next words when when jesus says for if you forgive other people when they sin against you your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their sins your father will not forgive your sins you ever read that thought, oh, that is what does that mean that sounds kind of scary like if there's any ounce of unforgiveness in my heart god has not forgiven me like which forgiveness comes first god's forgiveness for me or my forgiveness for others well Paul clarifies in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, when he says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. In Christ, through our repentance, God has forgiven us. Because God has forgiven us, we too need to forgive one another. In other words, forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people, forgive people. What, what Jesus is saying there in Matthew 6 is that you cannot enjoy God's forgiveness. You cannot live in the freedom of God's forgiveness while at the same time withholding forgiveness from other people. Gripping those wrongs and not releasing those in the act of forgiveness. The same hands that are closed around unforgiveness for others are the hands that are not open to receive and enjoy the forgiveness of God in our life. I, I heard, uh, uh, I, this is true, a tribe in Africa, I'm not sure which tribe, but uh, they catch monkeys 
by taking a coconut, hollowing it out, having a small hole in the coconut, and tying that coconut to a tree, putting a little bit of food in the coconut that a monkey likes. But the hole into the coconut is just big enough for a monkey's empty hand to get through. And when a monkey puts his hand into the coconut, he grips that food which he wants, and he tries to pull it out of the coconut so he can eat it. But his hand with that food will not come out. And those tribes people figured out how monkeys think. A monkey will never let go of the food. He will pull and he will pull hour after hour, but he will not let go. And because he will not let go, they come and they kill the monkey. And what a picture of, of what happens in our hearts when we withhold forgiveness from others, when we won't let go and free ourselves from that. In the end, we're the ones that end up hurting because a heart cannot receive and enjoy the forgiveness of God and live in the freedom of God's forgiveness while at the same time being gripped by unforgiveness for others. The same hands that are open to receive God's forgiveness are the same hands that are open to give it to others. And that can be difficult, but that's what God calls us to do, those of us who are forgiven in Christ. And there is God's mercy for us as we wrestle with that and as we seek to forgive others. Um, Mark Twain said, and I think this is a beautiful quote, forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. Forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. Forgiveness is what Christians do because it's what our Lord has done for us. So my question to you is, is there some work of forgiveness that you need to do today? Is there anything that you're hanging on to? You're not letting go of to forgive another God calls you to do that because that's one of the ways that you live in His forgiveness and enjoy His forgiveness on you by giving it away to others. So what difference would it make in your life right now, today? What difference would it make in your life this week if you were to embrace this label, to live in light of this identity, forgiven in Christ? And you see that on your screen. Hello, my name is forgiven. What would it look like for you today, this week, to claim that identity? What difference would it make to know that when God thinks of you, He doesn't think of your sin? I want to just give you a moment to reflect on that and to respond to God in prayer. Just take a moment, church, to Thank God that in Christ He has forgiven all of your sin. Not only has He ripped, no. Just thank Him for that great blessing. Maybe there's some guilt or shame that you're carrying right now, something you know that God has forgiven. But, but you still carry this weight. Yeah, if you're carrying something like that right now, just take a moment and say, God, I release this shame. I receive your forgiveness anew.
Maybe there's some unforgiveness in your life, some anger, bitterness, or resentment that you've been harboring against another, maybe for a very long time, something that's hard to forgive. And maybe right now you've you got to turn to God and you say, God, help me forgive others as you have forgiven me. Empower me by your spirit to let go. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, into this world to bear our sin, to bear our judgment, not only so that we could be acceptable to you, but that we could know your pleasure on us, so that we could have your affection, so that we could be free of guilt, so that we could be free of shame. We receive your forgiveness again today. Lord, just help us as we go into this week to live forgiven, to forgive ourselves, and to forgive others in your name and for your glory. In your son's name we pray.